is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups. And my special guest tonight is James Loomstein. James, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. My pleasure. Happy to be here and hope to have a great conversation, bring a lot of value and you know, help your audience out. So tell our Rising Tide listeners a little bit about James Loomstein. Oh, sure. Uh, so my background has been in the digital marketing advertising space for the last 20 years. Um, I started in the marketing part of a of a large corporation. I uh, then saw that, you know, I really wanted to work on like the marketing, marketing, like the hardcore marketing stuff. So back in the early 2000s, the best way to do that was to go back to school. And so I went back, I got my MBA at SMU uh, here in Dallas. I went after the marketing strategy world. I quickly realized in my, uh, in my first year that, wow, a lot of people in this class and my, my classmates had come from, you know, PepsiCo, American Airlines, Frito-Lay, larger companies here in Dallas, and that I had not. And that when we graduated, we were both going to have the same piece of paper, um, but they were still going to have that experience, and I wasn't, and I was going to be right back where I started. Uh, so in that moment, I decided that, wow, I need to get a little bit you know, more practical, um, a higher level of practical application, um, and get some real stories to tell. So I went and started freelancing during grad school. I went up to companies. I got projects. I said, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, how can I make this work? And I got project one and then two and then three. I then took that and leveraged it into a position in the, you know, the advertising agency world. Um, and from there, I made my career jump into marketing, marketing, and worked at Omnicom for about seven years. In 2010, I decided to walk out on corporate America, and you know I had, a, I had a strong passion for the entrepreneurial landscape. I had a strong passion for my own company, and I was incredibly passionate about the digital marketing landscape, about you know how you connected and engaged consumers, how um, brands grew, um, how you built community, etc. And I started a company called Digital Space Consulting. I grew that for about four years doing the freelance game, contractor game, you know, everything that everyone starts on that side. Um, and then I had the opportunity to take a project at a larger consulting company. The guy who hired me uh, ended up being my future business partner. And uh, he had his own agency. I had my own agency at the time. We were better together, brought our agencies together. Um, and that's the rogue marketing that you see before you today. So here we are. So we got kind of the background, the backstory of uh, on the business side of things, but yeah. on personal side of things, family. Uh, sure. So I, uh, I'm married. We have two kids, uh, fifth grade and second, uh, 10-year-old boy, seven-year-old uh, daughter. We live here in Dallas. Very passionate about my Dallas sports scene. I'm passionate. <laughs> I'm very passionate and frustrated Dallas Cowboys fan. Yeah, we were bemoaning the, that offline yeah, now. Yeah, for the better part of 25 years now. Uh, also a big, you know, Mavericks fan, uh, Rangers and Stars, and then, uh, you know, root proudly for University of Texas, uh, SMU, uh, and SMU uh, sports here. So who do you root for when SMU plays Texas? Well, uh, that doesn't really happen. But if I had to choose, uh, even though I have from SMU, you know, I, I'd probably say Texas. <laughs> but don't tell them that. Well, I have a, uh, I have one of my, my third child is actually a junior at Baylor right now and oh, excellent. kind of doing pre-law. So excellent. Um, yeah. We're going to see how good 
good uh, Baylor is in a few we a are. weeks. And we are going to find sure out when they when they hook the horns. So, yep. well, man, it's good to have you with us tonight. And uh, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, you you kind of mentioned you you went solo in 2010. Mm-hmm. So from 2010 to 2019, I mean, you know, we're in kind of this quantum change, you know. Um, era you know and then mm-hmm. say this this last decade mm-hmm. what what do you think is the biggest change that you know when you look back at 2010 versus 2019 what are what are a couple of the of the just biggest changes in the way that digital marketing is done yeah um number one is how technology is used to connect and engage people um especially on the mobile side um number two has been the proliferation of direct-to-consumer mm-hmm. like the the fall the falling part of the retail apocalypse that has been interesting. Um, but I think the more important thing is from a business owner standpoint or, you know, entrepreneurial side is that if you are under 30 here in 2018, um, you've never lived through a bad economy in your professional career. It has been nothing but great and moving up since you entered the workforce. If you are between 35 or or 40 and 50, you have lived through two bad downturns in your economy. And I think there's a real moment there, actually, that if you're under 30 and you're looking to start, you've never really seen bad. Mm. You have just seen good growth. But if you're over, you have some realization, you've had, you know, the downturn of the 08 economy. Yeah. If you're around, you know, my age, around, you know, I'm 42. If you're between 35 and 50, that was your, I'm sorry, Virginia, like if you're 45 to 55 years old, like that was the heart of your professional career. And it was just taken from you. And I think that that is a, um, you know, a moment in time. It certainly changed my life. It changed lots of other lives. It's actually the reason I went out on my own. Um, we had, you know, uh, our 10 year old was just born in 09. And, you know, our, our world was shook. Um, and I think that's part of it that sort of led that entrepreneurial side. And then I think the second thing coming out of that is that we're living in a world where entrepreneurship has been romanticized. I think we're living in a world where people are giving up. Uh, if you're in college or in the working world, you have people either not entering, you know, um, a six-figure salary for the chance of taking on six figures of debt. And they live in a world where the term CEO and startup and founder is cool. Well, if you're over 40 and you grew up and you went to school in the 80s and 90s, it was not cool to say you were a startup founder. It was not cool to say you're an entrepreneur. It actually meant you had no idea what you're doing with your life. And and that has completely changed. And and unfortunately, I think there's the, the downside of that, which you know, does hurt people and, and they live in a world of um, where everything is, everything is amazing. And as a startup founder, that is, you know, something I'd love to help change um, and champion. I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade, but I do feel like there is this romantic stigma that's out there that just needs to be talked about and moved on. And, you know, I, I wish that more people would, you know, take the opportunity of corporate America, honestly, to start. There's a lot of startup people that sort of hate on corporate America. I am one of them. But I also believe that corporate America serves a incredible foundation around operations, process, standardization, 
all those things that are logistics, so, yeah, logistics that are incredibly critical thing, yeah. to owning a business. Yep. And I think those are sort of a few areas that have been impacted over the last decade. Uh, you know, you mentioned the kind of the 2008 um, downturn. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. just the dot-com boom too, if you're yeah. kind of in that same. The 01, same yeah, same thing. Right. Certainly walked through that as well. But uh, mm -hmm. so it's interesting. I mean, I, I know that uh, you also teach a course at, uh, at SMU. So I do. when you're talking to students, I mean, is, is that course kind of in the entrepreneurial space? Or? It is. So it's the combination of uh, digital strategy uh, and entrepreneurship. And so what typically happens in, in most higher ed is here's your Harvard Business Review. Here's how a big corporation would solve that problem. But it's not really giving you the tools, tactics, and things that you need to be successful as a small business owner. If if I wanted to go out and you know start James's Water, um, that's a little challenging. If PepsiCo wanted to launch a brand new water company, they have they could do that tomorrow. They could roll out branding. They would have shelf space. They would have a built-in customer base. They could launch on Facebook and get a hundred thousand fans just like that, and really not even bat an eye. But the problem is that we, that we sit here and say, well, you should definitely go out and start your own water company. And you should be this of that and the Uber of, and you should do it on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And it becomes incredibly romanticized. And, you know, and the real purpose of my class is to help teach a couple things. One being, um, how do we not underestimate the cost of customer acquisition? How do we not... Um, understand and really focus on how big of an audience there actually is and then what does it actually take to make revenue like and profit and right. at the end of the day like how do we get money out of someone's pocket and put it in our pocket so the real foundation of the class is yes there's the tools right the digital stuff the social paid web video the next thing whatever that is but on the flip side it's like how do you take an unknown name, an unknown brand, a limited amount of capital, and go, right? How, how do you make that stuff happen? Because everybody thinks it just happens. And everybody gets very busy doing all the things, but nothing's actually happening. Yeah. And so yeah. we really need to focus on like, how do we leverage and, and grow, a, grow a business and a brand and, and move it from an idea to you know, a revenue producing entity? It's, I mean, it's interesting as you, you know, you were talking about kind of the romanticization of, yes. you know, entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, when you, when you talk to, um, and I, I don't want to make this an age thing, but when you talk to, yeah. to somebody that might have a more uh, romantic ideal, um, mm -hmm. what do you think is the biggest problem that they will encounter? Is it when they hit that first hurdle? They're like, whoa, I mean, how, how do I react to, you know, a downturn? How do I react to the fact that I can't get any clients or that they don't yep. pay me on time or, you know, or, or I got a tax bill I didn't, didn't anticipate or, I mean, what, what do you yeah. think is the, I mean, just, just feeling romantic about the ideal is, is one thing, but how does that have an adverse effect on, on them moving forward and making progress and, and a more realistic progress, I guess. That's a great question. I think that there's a, a couple things. I think people are romantic about their idea. Someone told them they were amazing. Their mom told them amazing, whoever, who said this is a great idea. 
and they didn't actually focus on, you know, is there actually an audience? Mm -hmm. It's incredibly expensive to, and hard, honestly, to um, educate a market. And if you are, if you're coming out with the new thing and you're supposed to convince people, that is way different than serving a market that actually has a problem. That's a great point. And I think the second part of that is the difference between doing it because you're passionate about it and doing it because that's what you're supposed to, doing it because you think that's your out. So the people who go and start the business because, you know, they found a, uh, a market opportunity, but they don't have an interest in it. They just have an interest in the money part. Those are the people that fail. And I tell people, like, I'm incredibly passionate about digital marketing and strategy and I read and I watch and I, you know, this is what I love to do. And so that's the reason I'm good at it and I continue to do it. But if I wasn't passionate about it, you still have, you know, rent and yeah, ownership and operating and, and employees and all those things that, you know, you're here because you are passionate about it. And, and I think the people who are like, oh, I'm going to, you know, be a millionaire in year three. That's always the magic number. Like everyone's going to make a million dollars in their third year. And I always ask them, I'm like, that's in a thousand days. What were you doing a thousand days ago? Like, <laughs> how does that move from nothing to a million dollars? And that seems to be the number everyone thinks. And, and if you're at top, you know, we were talking about the, like the top 1%, 2%, 3%, that number is 414,000. You're talking about tripling that. Like you are definitely trying to be a, a one percenter of even gross revenue, like gross. Yep. You're trying to be a one percenter in a thousand days. And when you think about it that way, you're like, wow, that's a that's, that's a little a challenging. <laughs> that, that, right. It is a lofty goal. And, and I think Probably that uh, yeah. And I think the second part of it is um, what I think actually breeds and creates uh, success and momentum. I think people underestimate the power of operational efficiency. I think that you have a lot of people you can, you know, you can scale a business, you can grow, you can cut your prices, you can race to the bottom, you can do all those things. But operational efficiency is actually a key metric and success uh, driver of growth. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's a tantamount almost to the, idea that you know when people are working on personal budgets they're, <clears> they're saying okay i just have to make more money no. i just have to make more money and they're thinking no. but you forgot the left side of that equation right. that says how much you're spending so yeah. how do you how do you work on both sides of those you yeah. know for sure so yeah operational efficiency i think is a key component for growth and you know not everybody um you know focuses on the accounting and the finance and supply chain and logistics and you know, the cost of customer acquisition, the cost of, you know, um, a lead, the lifetime value, the percent of engagement, the share of voice, all of those yep. things really matter. Like, it is too hard to just say, I'm going to post on Facebook and that's going to solve all my problems. Like not everybody's a passionate about the thing you're selling as you are. And, you know, you get caught up in this world of, well, everyone's just as passionate about, you know, t-shirts or everybody's as passionate about ballet parking or everybody like, no, they're not like they're passionate <laughs> about their watch thing. A shark tank. Everybody watches shark tank, right? Like that's the, <laughs> that's the thing. 
So we talked a little bit about, you know, you teaching at the university level. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about rogue marketing. And, <clears throat> and so let, let's, uh, you and I are stepping on elevator and we're going to go up about 10 floors. You've got a minute to so kind of give me your elevator pitch and, and maybe outline who would be your ideal client. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I think we're a marketing agency. I think we're sales and marketing put together. Uh, we focus on growth oriented, let's call it challenger brands that have an outcome they want to achieve. They want to move into a market. They want to launch a new product. There's something standing in their way and they need to make it happen. Now, we happen to focus on solving business problems. We might execute through the marketing lens, but at the end of the day, we're sitting here trying to solve the business problem. Um, and, and on two sides, number one is about simplifying and you know speeding up marketing and, and strategy. Everybody wants strategy, but nobody wants to pay for it. Everybody wants it to happen, and they all want it to happen yesterday. And, and so where those things come in is, you know, it might be focused on audience building. Um, it might be focused on business growth. But at the end of the day, we're sitting here on two things. One, focusing on an outcome, and two, minimizing the risk in which to get there. Without, with, with being agnostic to the tools, mm -hmm. platforms, techniques that are out there, like what's the business problem? And then what are the levers that need to be pulled to solve that problem? So do you help people with their, with their operational processes as well as part of this? Or is that that's that um, kind of a different strain? So yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, clicks and impressions are not going to solve your business problem. Mm -hmm. um, screaming louder and longer than your competitor isn't going to win either because you can't do that today. And, you know, and really focusing on what does it actually take to get someone from top of funnel all the way down to acquisition? How many do we need? Where do we need to focus? What platforms to use, when and where? How do we, how do we pull this lever? Um, do we focus more on awareness? Do we, you know, do we have an issue at consideration to purchase? Like, can we get people to make that switch? Um, do we need to focus more on loyalty and advocacy? Like, where in there is the problem? And then what levers need to be pulled? Do we have a, you know, an operations problem? Do we have a customer order and fulfillment issue? Do we have a retention problem? Is going out and getting more customers actually going to solve our problem or is mm -hmm. it going to exacerbate something further down? Right. right. Like, and that's sort of where we focus our efforts. Is there a, when, when you look at, you know, the kind of the, the client landscape out there, are there certain products that you all would say, no, we're not going to take that on? Does it, does the, I guess the question is, the bigger question is, does the product actually matter? The product doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is, you know, is there an outcome that needs to be achieved? And has there been something staying in the way of making that outcome happen? Or is there just a need for, you know, for smart marketing um, to be around to help solve that problem, right? Because if they know what they need, if you just need the thing, if I just had 10 more, con 10 more blog posts or... You know, if I just spend a little bit more on paid money media, that would save my problem. Or you know what, if I just used a red background instead of a blue background, that would clearly solve all my problems, right? If that's the thing, then go do the thing. But when you can't put your, your finger on it, mm -hmm. when you've been struggling with the problem for years or months or a quarter, like that is where you need just people to come in and actually solve the problem. But they didn't understand like what the problem is, right? Like spending more money doesn't solve the problem. It might help, but it's not going to solve it. 
right? And so where do we focus our efforts to actually solve the problem? And that's where we focus our effort. So what is, what is your biggest hurdle that you've got to get over to? Is it, is it you have to educate clients first before, <clears throat> before they, they see value in the service you're providing? Or the majority of people you talk to, are they pretty, you know, socially savvy right now? And they, they, they understand what they need. They just you know, are trying to find, is, this, is, is your firm the you best fit type thing? You know what? I, I think this kind of happens like sort of the passion for, for where we focus our efforts. And, you know, you might call it like your why, like, mm-hmm. why do you do this? And who do you serve? I think that there is a mid-market out there of 10 million, 50, 100, 500 million billion dollar company, right? They are frustrated and they are stuck. And here's what I think is happening in the market. And this is, this is sort of like our why, this is who I, who I seek to serve. Um, you know, I worked in corporate America. I could have easily stayed the consulting route. I could have easily gone into the management consulting world and, and served the fortune 500 world and, and done that. But I think what you see is this, let's call it the mid market who are stuck and frustrated. And here's why is that there are these companies, they are, you know, in these areas, they are growth oriented, they are trying to make things happen. There is a CEO out there or a board out there who's like, oh, we need to start leveraging some more marketing. We need to make this happen. So what do they do? They go out and they recruit a marketing person who let's call them a director or some bigger fish, you know, a smaller person in a, in a big pond, right? Mm-hmm. They had the title, they had the position, they bring them to this smaller world, the mid-market, and they're like, you're going to be the big fish. You're going to run everything. So this person comes in. They lay out the plan. It's a great plan. It's six months. It's beautiful. It's diagrammed. It's everything you'd expect in Fortune 500 world. It's full of big enterprise tools. It's full of all the stuff that, that would work at the big Fortune 500. And then the CEOs and then the marketing person says, here's my plan. And the CEO says, that's great. And they're like, go do it. And that person's like, well, I can't do it. Like where I was, I had 20 people. I had agencies. I had partners. They did it. I just came up with a plan. Like, I don't even know where the stapler is. Right. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm just here to tell you the plan. And then they get frustrated and that person's out. And the CEO is left with a plan and a really expensive plan and no one to do. So yeah. then the CEO and, and the lead executive board comes in like, you know what? We need to find some doers. And so they go and hire, you know, two early career people, because two is what they all do, right? And they're going to be in charge of marketing, whatever marketing is to them. And they're like, well, here's the plan. Go execute the plan. And they do. And it works because the plan was a good plan. And then they come around in the next year and the executive board says, all right, what are you going to do next year? And they're like, well, I'm young. I don't have experience. You tell me what to do. And And the executive board says, well, I need people to come up with the plan now like it's a new year and then these people get frustrated and so they're out and then the ceo and executive board like you know what we need we need a we know what we need so we're gonna go out and get a tactic right we're gonna put in marketo we're gonna put in hubspot we're gonna we're gonna put in tools to make all this stuff happen and they do that or they're like you know what we're gonna go find you know the two-person agency and they're gonna do all this stuff for us and every, but the problem is every time they come back, the solution they provide is the thing they're great at. You need more content because we're a content shop. You need a better website because we're a web shop. You need more, more money in paid media because we're a paid media shop. And then you have these people in their unilateral silos 
that are all doing stuff. Everybody's busy. Nothing's happening. The business isn't moving forward. And the CEOs and executives are frustrated once again. So then they go out and they're like, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to go to a full service agency. We're going to go get the, you know, the mid-sized, larger agency, and they're going to solve our problem. And the biz dev team is going to come in. They're going to wow them with all the amazing things they can do. And then they're going to be like, all right, ready to start the engagement. And here comes the young, recent graduate, early in their career, whippersnapper, who's going to tell them how to run their business and all the things they should do. And that agency where they thought they were getting all the love at the really high retainer, in month one, two, and three, it's there. And then month seven, eight, nine, they're like, why am I, where's this big retainer coming from? Why am I doing this? What's happening? And then they're like, you know what? I'm done with the agencies because agencies don't do anything. I'm going to go out and hire myself, you know, another person who worked at Fortune 500 who's going to come in and the cycle just continues. Start the cycle again. And that is the world we live in. And, and, then, and what's happening today, um, that cycle is just speeding up. CMOs are not lasting long. CMOs are responsible for everything. They have to, you know, fly the ship while they fly the plane while they build it. They're responsible for growth, but at the same time, you know, short-term growth, but long-term planning. They look around. They're like, "Where's my infrastructure? Where's my team? I don't have one." And just the cycle just limited continues. Yeah. Right, limited budget, no resources. You know, I need higher quality leads and conversions, but here's less money to make it happen. And, and so, and that's the thing that's happening. And, you know, I, I feel for them. I, I really do. I think that these mid-sized companies and brands that are out there are stuck. They're frustrated. They're short on resources. They're long on plans. They're um, knee-jerk reactions and they can't, and they can't move forward and they can't get to that big company. And, and they're just stuck here in the middle. In the middle is just a bad place to be. So where, where do you break into that cycle? And, and just as a, as a quick side note, yeah, I've been doing this for two years, every week for two years. I think that is the most thorough explanation of, oh, the, of, of somebody understanding their market yeah. at such I, a deep level that I, yeah. I think of anybody that's ever, ever explained that. So where does, where does rogue marketing break into that cycle? Um, in, in a couple of places, I, I think it's people who have been frustrated they hear the story and then they, it's not for them. And then they come back a year later and nothing has happened and they're still stuck and they're still frustrated and they, they can't get past that bedrock, big rock that's there. Like those are where we, um, that's where we shine. Like, and, and those types of companies and clients. And I appreciate the, I appreciate the compliment, but that is what I see. Like, and I actually feel for them. I, I think that, the other part of that is on the recruitment of talent, right? Like they, they're big enough in their own world, but they can't get the attention. They, they'll never get the attention of the big agency that they need long-term. They might get it for, you know, the beginning, but they're not going to get it long-term. And then on a, on a talent side, like the marketing world has become so competitive. It's been so driven by individual people who are very talented at the thing. Mm -hmm. that they cannot recruit everything they need to be successful. Yeah. And they are just stuck. And, and the reality is that, you know, maybe the, for the first 10, 15, 20, last 15, 20 years, pre like 2012, 2010, like maybe pre iPhone, they were successful. They needed the distributed sales force. They needed the wholesalers. They needed the distribution. And like, that's how they grew. 
and now like the barriers to entry are so low. There's so much noise in the market that the, the consumer just has more unlimited choice and they do need to find a way to make it successful. Right. And, and that's where I think they're getting stuck. And I think that's why it's catching up a little bit more uh, rapidly. It seems like, you know, patience is a big thing, but it seems like something that would have taken off in 2010, 2012, 14, but you know, it, it just wasn't, but I, you can totally tell over the last couple of years that, Oh, you know, and I'm empathetic. Like I feel it and I see them and you know, I'm just here to help. I, I have a feeling that if I'm a, if I'm a CEO, if I'm a board and you're sitting in front of me and you tell that story that even if it's not exact to a T that I can certainly identify with the yeah. different milestones in there and go, yeah, remember we had, we had them. Yeah. Remember when we did that guy, mm-hmm. you know, that guy was Ivy league. We came in with, had all the credentials, just didn't know how to execute. And yeah. they're going, I mean, that in essence would be your sales pitch. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give you the story. I'm going to outline the story for you here yeah. and tell you where, where, you know, we can kind of break this, mm-hmm. this continuous vicious cycle that you find yourself in. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and play that role. And, and I love the, I, I kind of the whole idea of this mid market, Yeah, uh, you know, these, these companies are out there five, 10 million, you know, annual revenue that you've mm-hmm. never heard of, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you drive down grow. the street, yeah. look off to the side, it's kind of a nondescript building and you're going, I would never imagine they were generating that kind of revenue, but uh, there's, there's hundred million, hundred million dollar companies like that too. Yeah. You would never imagine that that have grown and they have, they're ahead of spot. And you know, half of them are just like, I just want to maintain my market share. Right. Yep. Marriott and Sheraton and Hilton wanted to maintain their market share against each other. And then Airbnb showed up. Right. Yeah. Like, and this sort of direct to consumer phenomenon, the Amazon effect, the, yep. you know, the instant order and gratification world that we live in, like all of those things have kind of taken place. And, you know, the pie is still the pie. The problem is now there's too many people entering. The pie is not getting bigger. The, the pieces are just getting smaller. Right. 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 Like nothing's really growing. You're just having to share it with more people and they're all just fighting against that. And I, I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's such a noisy world. You've mm-hmm. got to really do things that are, that are, you have to ditch, differentiate yourself in yeah. some manner. And hopefully it's through quality, not just noise. Yeah. Sound. So I don't think you can clicks in Like I said before, clicks and impressions do not solve business problems. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I could, uh, I keep drilling down on, I'm just, just, you know, feeding you questions and just letting yeah. you answer all night long. But I, I really um, want to get to, you know, a, a really a crucial segment <clears throat> of our, of our, you know, rising tide chats and kind of building our library. And this is, this is such an interesting question, I think, to, especially people that are further down the road, like you are. Yeah. That if you were doing this again tomorrow, <clears throat> if you were starting over again tomorrow, Walk us through the process of, of those that are, you know, maybe sitting in a cube all day or they're thinking, I got to start yeah. a side gig. I got, I want to start something on my own. I want to follow a passion, you know, project and really go all in type things. So walk us through kind of the three to five step strategy that you would employ to really start again tomorrow, start something. Sure. Uh, I think step one is audience first, product second. I think that there has to be an available universe of people or consumers who are there to actively buy your, buy your product or service. Um, most people underestimate, like I said before, most people underestimate the cost of cus- the cost of attention and the cost of customer acquisition. But those are two critical factors. Um, part B of that would be is 
just because you're passionate about it doesn't mean everybody else is. Mm. So that leads back to like, is there an audience out there? And you can get that through, you know, even keyword research, just going out. How many people are searching for the thing that you're providing? How many um, options are there on Amazon for your product? Most people will tell you that, you know, competition is bad. I mean, competition is great. Like you want a competitive market. You want people to have choice, not unlimited choice, but like you want them to have an option. They need to have something to compare to. You, they need to be able to seek you out, find other options. If you're the only thing in the world that does that, then you have to educate people that they need to do that. Alternatively, it's already been out there. You are just serving, maybe you're serving an underserved market, but there is a market out there for the thing that you're providing, product or service. I think the second part of that is understanding the, what's called the diffusion of innovation. And basically it's an adoption, adoption methodology. You can go and just Google diffusion of innovation. And what you'll see is just a large bell curve. So here's what happens is that somebody goes, you know, they're thinking they're in their cubicle, they're in their office, they're on their sales route. And they're like, I'm going to sell X product. And turns out, you know, let's say they're, they're going to sell you know, t-shirts, right? And they're going to sell um, women's t-shirts. That's their thing. Well, congratulations. You just knocked out 50% of the world, right? <laughs> so let's, exactly. not, let's not do that. The second part of that is like, let's make sure there's actually a total universe and an available universe. So a total universe might be, you know, all humans need a shirt, right? So there's 7 billion of those. Of those, how many are actually available? Like who out there, it's not 7 billion, that's not the number, right? So it's probably number smaller than that. So you need to start with that number, not the bigger number. And the second one is about adoption rate. So what ends up happening is people are saying, I'm gonna make a million dollars in year three, right? So I'm gonna be making um, $1 million every year. That is about $100,000 a month in sales. And that is, I don't know, just doing that, like what, $3,000 a day, like that's gonna happen, right? And so they're not thinking about, well, what happens when those first sales don't happen on day one or year three, right? So what is happening is there's like this cash burn rate where it says that, you know what? I was, when I wrote my business case, it was built on the bigger number, the total universe, not the available. <laughs> and the second part of the equation is, well, it's built on this customer adoption rate. So it turns out in diffusion innovation, doesn't matter if it's sneakers, iPhones, water, whatever it is, only 2.5% of the population is your early adopters. Yep. There's another part that's sort of like your early majority, your late majority, your laggers, right? All of these things that play out. And if you were working your way through the top of the bell curve, you would hit about like 60% of the market. So when you're sitting here, and this is where I think most companies fail, it's not always the plan, it's about like working the plan. And if I had to go over and if I had to educate and like do this for selling a product and service, number one, how big is the available universe, not the total? And then what happens if I only get 60% of the market? Can I still succeed? Do I have enough cash? Will this work? Like that is the number we have to use. It's not really a 60, like can I afford the 2% and the 16%, like 18% for 
the first year or definitely not day one of sales. I'm not going to open the door and sales are going to happen that day. But like, how can I play this out to actually have adoption? I don't have a hundred percent market share. I never will. It's the smaller number. Like, can I make this profitable? And I think too many people focus on the bigger number and hundred percent adoption and they ran out of money, like as things are taking off. Mm. So that'd be number two. Wow. And then I think the third part is about um, investing in non-revenue producing activities. I, I think that looking back on myself personally, the faster I invested in non-revenue producing activities or dropping the things I sucked at and outsourcing it to other people, the more beneficial that was to our growth and the more it happened and more it helped us grow. So I'll give you an example. We could all sit here and pump out invoices on Excel and Google Sheets and, and send all that and do all your books in Excel, right? Or you could spend a little money and go on Zoho. You could spend a little bit more, it, more than that and go on QuickBooks. You could spend a little bit more than that and get a bookkeeper. You could spend a little more than that and get an accountant. Like you can go all the way up. The faster you can get, for me, it was the finance side of, of operations. The faster I got that off my plate and let somebody else take it, and you know, hired a, I think our first bookkeeper was from like a Upwork mm -hmm. and 50 bucks an hour. And what she could do in three hours would take me eight. And the faster I paid her 150 bucks so I could go off and do the things I was great at, the better off we were. And whether that's on the services side of project management or um, finance or accounting or HR, whatever those, the non-revenue producing activities, the faster you can invest in non-revenue producing activities, the faster you will grow. Too many people want to associate, they want to put a dollar in the machine and get a dollar fifty back. Whether that's in marketing or people or sales or whatever it is. But what if I were to tell you, you know, if I put a dollar in this machine and I got back 60 cents, but I put a dollar in this machine and I got back $2.40, like I would do that all day, right? But too many people just look at the thing Yep. instead of looking at the system and the more they focus on the system, the better off they'll be moving forward. And I, I love the way you kind of wrap that up. And I just, to, as a follow-up question, I'm just curious if you were starting again tomorrow, is there a specific like industry that you would, you would uh, target or would you, you just love digital marketing space? <laughs> you you would stay there or what, what would you do? What's in an ideal world? Yeah, I, I probably would. I'm, I'm passionate about technology. I'm, been passionate about marketing since I was a kid. Um, and I love the consultative, like teaching side, right? I mean, I teach in, in graduate school. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think it's a great combination of those, of those three things. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate and lucky to, you know, have a great wife and partner who, you know, helped us allow the opportunity to go out and, and start a business. Um, I have a great business partner that we complement each other so well it wasn't two people who were great at the same thing right and couldn't do the other things they weren't good at like we were able to make that work and so you know i've been fortunate and lucky to to have that you know around me so as we as we wrap up tonight is there um is there anything that i haven't touched on that, that you want to just kind of leave with our audience as, as we're closing out here and uh um just tell people where the, where the best place to find <coughs> you is and and I know, I know that you said on your website that, uh, you know, go rogue, or rogue marketing is always looking for good people to join the team. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we do look for, you know, 
people who are what I would call a lifelong learner, people who are passionate about the thing or, you know, why things work the way they do. The discoverability, I think, is a, is a real key component. Um, if I had one, like, you know, the people listen to your podcast or, you know, they're driving or they think about starting, um, I think there's two things. I think, you know, patience is, is, a, is a real thing. I can tell you, um, as amazing it always looks on the outside, you know, it's a lot of hard work and the things that actually make that thing happen. And that passion and the ability to make decisions are critical parts of success. I think in the entrepreneurial world, I'll back up one. In the entrepreneurial world, I think if you're great at the thing, that's wonderful. There's lots of people who are good, right, at doing this stuff, building it, whatever. But overly passionate matters um, and decision-making matters. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you have the ability to make decisions in a sea of darkness and under utter chaos, you can be a successful entrepreneur. But the people who need all the facts, need to make it happen, have the plan, lay it out, that is where it kind of falls apart. You know, I look at um, sports teams, the military, those are sort of the things that, you know, um, Navy SEALs, right? The ability to make a decision and move forward, the ability to say we're going left instead of right, the ability to, to pinpoint this is the thing that we're going to do. Like, those are critical parts of being a successful entrepreneur and a founder, um, running a company, you know, knowing the difference if you're a, what I would call a number one versus a number two. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people out there who want to be a number one, but they would be so much happier as a number two or a yep. three or a four. Yep. But living in this world of like, you have to own a company, you have to build it. You have to like you. Yes. But on the flip side, you know, the 16th person at Google is doing okay. Right. Or the, or the 400th person at Google is doing okay. And at the same time, I think that we're just romanticizing it so much that you're either, it's binary, you're either the CEO or you're not. Right, right. But with that comes with an amazing amount of other things that that sort of play in. And just because it's there doesn't mean you have to take it. And there's a lot of people that, you know, vice versa, who are out there working their corporate job. You know, there's a lot of frustrated 40, 50, 60-year-old people who have been in a thing for 20, 30 years who are kind of stuck there now. And you know, they make 80K, 100K, 200K. There's a lot, like it looks great, but they're frustrated. And I think there's honestly a lot of people who make you know, 80, 70, 80, 90, $100,000 a year who would be so much happier at 50, 60, 70, right? And just doing the thing they doing want. Doing their own gig, yeah. Doing their own gig. Yeah. But sitting here saying it has to make a million dollars in year three, I, yeah. I don't think that's a real thing. Yeah. I think there's just too much of that going on right now. I I could not agree more. I could not agree. I, I love that you know, the idea you're talking about, you know, just kind of working the plan. I mm-hmm. I love that saying that said everybody's got to, you know, every boxer's got a plan until you get hit in the face. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, how do you, how do you kind of, you know, fight through that and, and uh, <clears throat> in that kind of period of darkness you were talking about as an entrepreneur um, and how they can operate. So. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, uh, I think the mental game is harder than the physical game. You know, I look I at athletes, agree. I look at athletes, um, I look at people who have been, you know, suffered an injury, you know, 
um, who fight chronic pain, you know, all those things. I think the mental game of it is so much harder than the physical, you know, the rehab, the getting punched in the face, whatever the thing is. Um, and so I think it's important that side is number one. And number two is I think people need to live in the gray. I think that if you were sitting here, you know, we talk about like sports fans, right? Mm -hmm. Fanatics. They live on every win. They hate every loss. They, you know, they can't live in the middle. You watch every team. They just live in the middle, right? Yep. We won or we lost. And we move Plus on to the, the Patriots. Next. They tend, right. they they tend to keep, live. They just keep winning. They just right. keep winning, yeah. Or any team from Boston. That's exactly right. But for the rest of us out there, right, I think the people's ability to just live in the gray. I got a great win. Great. Let's move on. Uh, we just lost, you know, a client or, you know, this order didn't come through. Great. Let's move on. Like The ability to keep moving forward, mm. to live in that gray, to not get too high, not to get too low. Focus on that part. The ability to make decisions in the sea of darkness, like those are the things I think make people successful. But if you're the emotionality of it, if you're getting too high, if you, you know, if you get too low, if this album didn't do well or did great, or I got that part, didn't get that great part, I made that shot, I missed this field goal, like that will never play. Like that long-term play, that will never, that never works out. But you just live in the middle, I think it's probably a good place to be. Wow. I, I love the way you kind of wrapped up tonight and, and this, that, you know, it painted that kind of that sports metaphor of, of just operating within the middle, because at yeah. the end of the day, I mean, that's where every team that doesn't win the Super Bowl ends up. So only one team to, wins, you know, you yeah. have to have a short memory and you have to, yeah. <laughs> as like a good cornerback, you know, it has to have a very short <clears throat> memory. And, and uh, every entrepreneur, CEO, founder, and I don't, it doesn't matter if you're the CEO of, you know, Nike or Under Armour or American Airlines or, you know, Chase or JP Morgan, like, or you're the CEO of the lawn care company or the dry cleaning or the fence maker or the, you know, the bricklayer. We all, they all battle the same thing, yep. right? Everyone's trying to grow to the next level. But if everyone is, if you're caught up in the middle and you can't make decisions, then you can't really move forward. Well, James, I, I mean, I appreciate your time tonight. And uh, it's just been a real pleasure just to kind of, you know, just jump inside your head a little bit and just continue to ask probing questions and, and, and letting you kind of unwrap this for our audience tonight. Oh, I, my pleasure. I, thank the, you very much for having me. All of our rising tide listeners. I just want to thank you for, for that. And, and yeah. uh, to learn more about him, go to gorogue.net is uh, the, the rogue marketing website and uh, a lot of good stuff there. And, you know, he's got some videos on YouTube and, and there's other places that you can, you can find him online, but uh uh, just just little vignettes out there that, you know, just talk about specific, you know, topics at, at different times and different people have interviewed him. So I encourage you to, to look him up online. And but James, thanks again for just taking the time and just helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Have a great oh, night. Pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>